0: Hey guys, this is Jake Blum. Welcome to our show, Quakers and Makers, the very first podcast dedicated to finding the best and brightest UPenn alumni around the country. We're going to hear their stories, successes, failures, and most importantly, the lessons they learned along the way. Without further ado, start the show. Hi everyone, hi Doug. I'm excited to have you as a guest on our show. So for those listening in, I'm here with Doug Clayton He is the head of HR and SVP of Learning and Development for SES. So, uh, hey, Doug, how's it going today?
1: Hey, Jake, everything's really well. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: We're happy to have you. I want to get to your time at Penn in, in a moment, but first, could you just share a little bit about what you do at SES?
1: I'm the human capital leader for the Americas for SES. SES, in case you don't know, is the world's largest satellite service provider. We do much more than that, but that's really our claim to fame. We fly satellites primarily in the geosynchronous orbit, about 20,000 kilometers, miles above Earth. We cover 99% of the globe. We also fly satellites in the MEO orbit as well. Some of our customers include NBC and various media companies. uh, A lot of the cruise liners and airline companies are our customers and. Department of Defense, and other governments throughout the world. Where we are headquartered in Luxembourg. We have around 2,000 employees. And yeah, it's a wonderful company to work with really good management team and very much employee-focused.
0: How did you, you know, securing the role that you're in now?
1: Yeah, so luckily for me, my role has changed every few years since I've been with SCS. I mean, my career started HR career started with GE, and that's where I learned a lot about human resources. And then the GE business I was working for at the time, AmeriCom, was acquired by this tiny company called SES in this tiny country called Luxembourg. So I stayed in with them, and then my career really blossomed after that, and... Basically, I was a human resources manager or a generalist at the time. That was in 2001. And just various moves over the years, every two or three years, my job would change. I became a director of employee relations. I got involved with union negotiations with Teamsters. And then I had this wonderful opportunity where the company provided me with a six-month expatriate assignment in Luxembourg. So I got to live in Luxembourg outside of the U.S. for six months. and That was valuable on several levels, just to be immersed in another culture and see how other people live and their view of the world, their view of America and Americans. It was invaluable. But also trying to figure out the best way to do HR for a global company. People were quite generous with their knowledge and their patience with me. So that was great. And then we actually made a movie while we were over there. It was a parody on James Bond, and that was a real big hit. And I think that that helped to develop maybe a reputation of me being interested in film and movies and things like that, and then using movies to help people learn. So that was in 2007. And then there was a reorganization that took place in 2008 where we created SES Technology Company, and I became the HR leader for that organization. And a couple of years later, around 2010, the company reorganized again, and my job is being eliminated. However, at the same time, Jake, I was in the University of Pennsylvania doctoral program and the company was sponsoring me. Because it was a corporate learning focus, my degree, the Penn CLO program, the company and I agreed that my job as the HR leader for this engineering unit would be eliminated. But instead, what we would do is we would create for the first time ever a global learning and development leader job. So that was a really great opportunity for me to immerse myself for the first time in the world of learning and development. So it was a unique opportunity because it was something new. And in addition, I could apply a lot of what I was learning at University of Pennsylvania. Things such as using evidence when we're making decisions on the type of interventions that we want to apply in learning and development. Things like using film and business simulations and actually creating them ourselves things such as leaders as teachers that notion is something that I learned at Penn as well so there were these key learnings from my doctoral program that I was able to apply to scs learning and development as we created the function and then after that most recently a couple of years ago the company asked me if we needed a particular focus on the Americas, not just North America, but Latin America as well. So I was the most senior HR person at the time in the Americas. And so they asked me if I would take that role on. So I shifted gears again. And then what I've decided is that I'm pretty close to retirement. I'm going to retire next year from SCS. It's been a wonderful ride. And truly, this is the best company that I've worked for. From a leadership standpoint, the way that they treat employees just the whole history of the company it was great and it was a wonderful ride for me
0: what an amazing journey that you've been on and there was so much good information in there that I want to unpack so i guess the first thing that i'm thinking of is when i think of hr i think of people and the responsibility to both develop people and talent and also manage people issues how have you dealt with those competing forces
1: Well, first of all, developing talent, I mean, that's always been important to me. And that goes back to the GE days. And that's really how I got into HR. My work up to that point, working for Fannie Mae, Travelers Mortgage Services, GE Capital Mortgage, it was never in human resources. It was always in the business, if you will, quote unquote, business. And it was really mainly in risk management. But the HR folks and I had a good relationship because I saw the value of providing training or getting people trained and developed. So that was always a part. I always understood the value of that from a morale standpoint and also from the very practical developing skills, quite important. So I guess you could say that's been part of my work DNA, if you will. Dealing with employee relation issues, I think you're touching on, uh, very, very challenging. And of course, as a department supervisor, manager, every now and then Going to have an employee relation issue. However, when I moved into human resources when I was with GE in 1991, my first role was staffing, recruiting. A few years later, I was transferred to Houston, Texas, and then that's when I started to get into employee relations, and that's a completely different world. And that was baptism by fire, just trying to work through employee relation issues, et cetera. And what I found is that the best thing that I could do is listen, and then simply try to be fair, try to empathize with folks and put yourself in their spot, put yourself in the manager's spot. I remember some of the Houston managers asked me, are you an employee advocate or a management advocate? And I said, I'm an employee advocate. And let me tell you why, because employees need somebody to advocate. You as a manager, you have a lot of power, you have a lot of influence, but employees have less. And if they don't have somebody to advocate for them, then they'll go to a union or some other group. And so anyway, that's always the way that I've approached it, is even as I moved up in my HR career, I always felt it was important for human resources to lean toward advocating for employees. Certainly support managers, right? But when it comes down to hardcore employee relation issues, you gotta listen, you gotta take the employees point of view. And then you've got to make a decision. And sometimes that decision could be to terminate the employee. But you have to do it in a way where they're treated with dignity and respect. And you certainly want to minimize any legal exposure to the company as well.
0: Understood. And I think that's good advice for anyone in any sort of HR or or management role is to come from a place of listening and understanding and then take it from there. And so you mentioned that you went back to school to go to Penn. What was the decision there? Was that your own doing or something that you decided together with SES? Why why did you decide to do that?
1: A couple of years before, I completed my master's degree at Villanova in human resources development. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to go back to school, not even considering going back to school. It's just done with school. A couple of years later, I was attending a human resources workshop at Penn and during a break they talked about this doctoral program and that really got my attention and applied for the program was accepted yeah it was quite important to me to be able to immerse myself into learning in the area of hr and in this case with a particular focus on or a sole focus on learning and development or training and corporate learning so my manager at the time Wonderful fellow named Martin who who is the uh, CEO of the SES Engineering business that I mentioned. I mentioned it to him, and he said, "Oh, absolutely, we will support you 100 percent." And it's a pretty expensive investment, and that's how he viewed it. You know, I remember thanking him how much I appreciated the support, and he said, "No, he said, we really need to be thanking you." He says, "What you're going to learn will be very valuable to us," and so that's how that worked. That uh, the company was fully supportive of me. They paid for my tuition. I was very blessed that way. And then I was very committed to trying to return that investment to SES.
0: That's amazing that they supported you not only from a, just a moral and emotional standpoint, but also financially. And it sounds like it was, a good, it was a good deal for all parties involved. And so you and I spoke, we had another conversation before this, and you mentioned this theme at Penn of giving back to society. Could you share a little bit about that and specifically about your kind of foray into the film world?
1: Yeah, certainly. With each of the five blocks that we went through to complete our coursework, it was emphasized a couple of times during each block. Okay, so what are you going to do for society? You know, you're learning a lot at Penn. The majority of the professors were Wharton professors. In fact, that's why I'm considered, I mean, I'm a Wharton alum. Because of that, there were so many professors from work. We had Angela Duckworth before she became famous. She was one of our teachers. It was just an amazing opportunity for us. In addition to that, my cohort and the folks who were in the program, brilliant people, people who were running human resource departments or learning and development departments. So we were learning a lot from the teachers and from each other. And they would say, so, okay, this is a great opportunity. You're learning really great things. What are you gonna to do to make a difference? So I was thinking, geez, what can I do? And I was living not too far from Camden, New Jersey. And at the time there was a technology block as part of the program where the teacher emphasized filmmaking. Ahmed Amit Das. He was a wonderful teacher, is a wonderful teacher. And so we all made a couple of short films and the idea was to understand how film can have an impact on learning. The more I thought about it, the more I thought, gee, gee was. you know, I'd I love to make my own documentary one day. And at the time in Camden, I read about this theater that was going to have a premiere of a play that was written by a local guy named Joe Pabziki And the play house used to be in an abandoned bar. The abandoned bar used to be Joe Pabziki 's grandfather's bar. So these connections were just very interesting to me. And the play was about fictional play but somewhat biographical based on his grandfather's life in the bar and my wife and I went to see it and I remember weeping afterwards I was so moved by this play and just by this whole vibe of being in this incredibly violent city Camden at the time was known as the murder capital of America and just driving there to go see a play felt a little bit risky And I was just quite moved by the quality of the play, but also just this beautiful theater that was created out of nothing. And I wanted to learn more about that. So I decided to make a documentary with a couple of fellows. And uh, that's how we made this short film, 26-minute documentary called Dovati for Camden. And Dovati is an Italian word for duty or responsibility. And, And that comes from the story that's in the movie as we interview one of the key Characters of the documentary, so I thought that's interesting, and I didn't think anything truly. I didn't think the movie would have any impact on anyone. I just thought it was an okay project, and I would give the DVD to these two guys, Jay Patzicki and Paterno, and that I'd be done. But the response was really, to my surprise, quite strong, and I kept hearing from people who would watch it. It makes me wonder what can I do to make a difference in my community, and these are people who grew up like in the Soviet Union or in Western Europe or outside of Camden, outside of New Jersey. And the fact that the film, the story that these two guys told, and I guess the way that we pieced it together, the the editor, uh, Raymond Padilla, was really wonderful to work with. I guess the story moved people. I remember there were some screenings where people were in tears and We won a number of awards, again, much to my surprise, uh, in various film festivals. So I thought, there's something to this. Now, Jake, at the time, I was also doing some public speaking on the impact that film has on learning. And that was my doctoral dissertation from Penn. And I conducted this global experiment. It's the largest experiment of its kind. It lasted over five months, over 300 people, three different continents, Asia, North America, Europe. Many countries, many cities, and we conducted a test and experiment to see when we use film in a corporate learning setting, change management class, or no film, what kind of a difference, if there's any, are people retaining more information or not? There? And I'll spare you all of the details, but basically there was a statistically significant increase in retention in every instance that we did film versus no film. So that, that was quite interesting to the folks at Penn. So therefore I did a little bit of public speaking on that topic, again, film and learning. Then I started thinking, well film is also very inspirational and I started to think of examples of how film has inspired me or films that I've been involved in making, how it's inspired other people based on the feedback that they've given us. So now we've made a second documentary with the purpose to tell a story, obviously, but also tell a story that hopefully will just naturally inspire people, And we're in the very final editing stages Mm -hmm. now, and we're getting ready to premiere in September. And the early feedback is that, you know, people are saying it's really inspiring. So anyway, that's kind of what I took away from Penn was, how do I make a difference in the world from the stuff that I'm learning? And so that's what I've decided is if I can make some documentaries, tell some stories, and, and if these stories happen to inspire people to maybe make a difference, then mission accomplished.
0: I don't know what's more interesting, your career or your journey into film. It's pretty amazing that I feel like so many people go to business school and maybe they hear a similar mantra and maybe they're looking to make change through their career, through their business. And you took it to more of a creative passion, Mm -hmm. something that you were not really familiar with before. I mean, right, you hadn't really made any documentaries before you made the film when you were in. Luxembourg. And I just think it's so wonderful that you got out of your comfort zone to make your first documentary in Navarre and now onto your second one with the Heart of Camden. And, you know, I was lucky enough, you were fortunate enough to share a sneak preview of the uh, Heart of Camden with me, which I watched earlier this week. And I left the film feeling like I wanted to go do something in my community, which is, I think, you know, film can inspire people to do something or to feel something. And for me specifically, after watching both films, I think both films tell the story of Camden through a a different lens. And I think Camden is a really interesting city. We were chatting on a little bit before. What does Camden mean to you? And what do you think the world can learn from a city like Camden?
1: You know, so most recently in the news with defunding police and everything that's in the news about police, There have been a couple of articles about Camden, and they focus on the recently retired chief of police, Scott Thompson, who did some pretty amazing work there. He and and a couple of politicians, they completely revamped the police force. And so I think the world is learning from Camden how they've successfully revamped the police force. What they did is they basically fired everyone, they eliminated the police union, and then they hired a new police force and they expanded it. It was no longer a Camden city, but a broader Camden County police force. That's quite important. And probably half of the policemen who they fired, they hired back and then they hired a whole bunch of other police officers. And Scott Thompson told us, who's in the film by the way, and he told us that there were a few guiding principles. One is if you're gonna be a cop in Camden, you're no longer to view yourself as a warrior you are to view yourself as a guardian of a neighborhood. Now think about that for a moment. That is completely different. Now, that may be the case in suburbs. I don't know. It is, I guess. But in cities, no, 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 no. Especially ultra-violent cities that have just brutal reputations. Remember, murder capital of America, Camden City. So become a guardian of the neighborhood. I want you to get out of the cars and to walk the neighborhoods, not just drive through the cars, number two. Number three, I want you to knock on every door in that neighborhood and introduce yourself and get to know the people who live there. And number four, I want you to write fewer tickets. I'm not going to be impressed if I see more tickets. I'm going to be impressed if I see fewer tickets because that means that you're developing relationships. People aren't feeling abused and harassed. Now, when he told us this, it's the first time that I'd ever heard of anything like this. And this was a year ago that we interviewed him. And this is exactly. What you're seeing in articles in The New York Times and other media outlets who have covered Camden, I think the other thing uh, that you know folks can learn from Camden is look at some of the clergy like Father Michael Doyle, who we focus on in this film part sure. of Camden. I mean, I actually had the honor of spending some time with him this past Wednesday, and that's the day of his retirement now he's eighty five years old, born and raised in Ireland, but yet. When he came to Camden to be a priest, he never left, totally committed to helping. And so here he is. He's finally retired, 85 years old. I mean, he could have retired years ago. And where is he going to live? He's not going back to Ireland. He's not going to retire to a very comfortable retirement home for priests in a suburb, which is what they all do. He's moving across the street from the church and the school that he helped keep open. And he's going to spend the rest of his life in that neighborhood in Camden. It's extraordinary. And there are other folks out there like that. There's Monsignor Michael Mannion and many others, but the story of Father Michael Doyle, I think is an important one. And if people tap into what he was about, how completely selfless he's been, how he's been a real, you know, true advocate for the poor, a voice for the poor. It's amazing. So it's a combination of, you have some politicians who can make very tough business decisions, such as we're going to fire everyone, get rid of the union, and we're going to start all over again. You have a very brave police chief who says, look, I was one of you guys. I was a cop in Camden on the beat, and we're going to change things. And I know I'm not going to be popular, but I don't care. That's real leadership. And I remember Father Doyle telling us about Chief Thompson. And he said one thing that impressed him is Chief Thompson consistently says that one thing that's made a difference is basically everybody matters. doesn't matter who you are, but everybody matters. And that's how you have to treat people. And then another area of leadership, I think, is the priests and the clergy in Camden who stay and who make a difference.
0: What a fascinating story of Camden and some of the key players. And for those that are interested, you can certainly check out both of Doug's films to get more of the full story, and it really is moving and inspirational. So we're coming up at the end of our time here. Doug, what's next for you? I know that you're obviously retiring. I know you have this film that's going to be released very soon, but what's next after that?
1: I have an idea for a third documentary, and it's a pretty fascinating story of a retired priest, the Monsignor Michael Mannion, who was the... Chaplain for the FBI, for the New Jersey State Police, I believe for the U.S. Marshals as well. And he's a Camden guy as well. He's created something quite special called the Discovery House. And it's in Southern New Jersey. It's a house that used to be kind of a dilapidated home. And over the years, they fixed it up and they turned it into a wonderful retreat oasis, if you will, for people who have experienced incredible violence and crime. And there's a lot of other valuable contributions that the Discovery House makes as well. But I'm thinking that could be quite inspiring as well. So that's next on my radar. And then also in terms of, is there something that I can do in, in terms of you know sharing whatever knowledge I may have in my experiences of making corporate films, uh, various parodies on the Godfather of values, James Bond, Mission impossible in the various methods that we've used to, to make those movies interactive and interesting to folks. Um, and I'm happy to do that as well.
0: So, if anybody wants to reach you for your film business, what would be the best way to do so?
1: It's probably best to send me an email uh, to douglas.clayton, C L A Y T O N, at S E S dot com. Or you could just give me a call on my uh, mobile phone, 609 271. 0389.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap up our conversation. Doug, it's been truly a pleasure getting to speak with you and getting to hear more of your story. And yeah, we look forward to having you again sometime soon.
1: Thanks, Jake. Really appreciate your time. You're an excellent interviewer. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by me, Jake Blum, a fellow UPenn alum and financial advisor. Until next time, be well. We'll see you then.